We're almost to the end of the first season, and while so far we've been getting to know our girls and moving forward with storylines, we've made it to the episode where it feels like we've traveled back in time, back to a time where hair and makeup didn't know what they were doing, when the lobster pan was still over the sink, and where no one knows what's going on. Grab your yellow curtains and cheap wigs, kids. It's time to go job hunting. even get to the lullaby Blanche's singing while doing veggie chopping at the stove, we need to talk about the look of this episode. Even if you aren't a super fan, if you're watching the show in order, this episode stands out like a sore thumb. It's not that it's bad or anything, it was just filmed totally different than anything we've seen since the pilot. And that's because of sex. When starting the show, producers filmed several episodes. They continued to film so they would have a plethora of episodes to choose from. It's one of the reasons there isn't a ton of carryover storylines from episode to episode. Job Hunting was actually one of the first episodes filmed. But once there were other, better episodes, producers decided to release those first. They also wanted to hold the episode back because of the frank discussions about sex. If they had released it as only the second episode, it could have been too controversial and it could have led to cancellation. But in waiting and letting everyone get to know the girls, the conversation at the table is still scandalous, but after falling in love with them, everyone is much more comfortable with it. Because this was filmed early on, many choices were made that changed with time. For example, the lighting and the temperature, as in from the warmer yellows and browns to cooler greens and blues. And let's not forget everyone's hair, especially Sophia's. Yikes. Blanche is wearing less makeup. It's all just off, but not off full, just different. And it gives us so many opening credit shots. Okay, back to Blanche's singing. As she is chopping veggies for her salad on the stove instead of at the Islander table, Blanche is singing a happy little song. But in this case, we're kicking off the episode with an oh boy. The song she's singing is called Kentucky Babe, and it was written in 1896 by Richard Henry Buck and Adam Giebel. How is an old lullaby an oh boy? Well, it was written by two white guys, or at least they got the credit for it, and it is considered a plantation lullaby, with words like bobolink, which is a black songbird, and lyrics like lay your kinky woolly head on your mammy's breast, and phrasing like skeeters am a hummin'. It's pretty clear that Blanche, whose family had a plantation, should maybe put this one on the shelf. Blanche is wearing a very, very light purple dress with an apron when Sophia walks in, headed for the fridge. She and her yellow pantsuit are deep in the icebox when Blanche's plantation song changes keys, leading to a bit of a shrieky performance. Unfazed, Sophia makes her way to Blanche to ask about the pepperoni. 
Paul Bogert is back as our director, which is pretty clear from how the camera is placed tightly at the front of the stove. With Sophia and Blanche in the frame together, it's crowded and it's just kind of bad. I really don't know if the show would have survived if they had aired them in order. This is Coco coming in from the front lines of the Always Be My Sisters Wars. (laughs) Bogart's back, baby. We thought we'd defeated him. But he's rolling into town. The final boss. On his weird tracking shots, <laughs> assaulting us with his harsh lighting. Ouch. Ouch, Paul. And just old, old uh, dramatic look. Just full soap opera. Full soap opera tracking shots. Super tight shots. It's awkward all the way, man. And I, I know it's weird angles now, but they weren't weird then because the show had just started. But I think for a sitcom, though, I'm going to say for a sitcom, that's weird, at least to me. I think, well, and I know he got his start or at least worked on All in the Family, and that had more of that feel because maybe because they went into more dramatic topics sometimes. It had that same soap opera feel. Having him come back reminded me how much I didn't miss his style. Is this the final uh, appearance of his styles? I think there might be one more in season two, but for the most part, we're done. Boy, yeah, really? No, this is our last time. This is our last encounter with Mr. Bogart. Yeah, there's something so comforting because I feel like part of Golden Girls and what is so loved about it is that you were always allowed to be the fifth girl. There was always room for you. Yeah. And I feel like his episodes, yeah, like you said, the tightness, it doesn't allow for that. So when they do a shot and it's the whole living room and you see everyone sitting in their different spot, it's like, oh, and I'm in my chair over in this corner watching them do this yeah and he yeah he just didn't it's not welcoming get that yeah and i think if if i really am not sure if these had been back-to-back episodes i don't know if golden girls would have become what it is blanche doesn't have any pepperoni but she can offer some celery stuffed with cottage cheese which i've never heard of and the thought of that texture combo makes me want to die a little bit But Sophia passes on the offer, and it's not because it sounds disgusting. Perhaps it's her European heritage speaking here when she says that she can't have it because it repeats on her. That phrase isn't used very often, but the general idea is it means that you get heartburn or indigestion. More graphically, it can mean that you burp and taste the food again. Hello, muscle milk. I can taste those things for a week. Coco, do you have any repeaters? A meatball hoagie. <laughs> any any sort of dense meat, meatloaf. Mm. If I eat something sweet right before or like near bedtime, mm. oh baby, that's going to burn me down. <laughs> burn me down from the inside. Entering the kitchen in her kitchen-inspired brown and yellow ensemble is Dorothy, who immediately walks up to her mother at the table and gives her a big kiss on the head. Without so much as a hello, Sophia informs Dorothy of the bad news. They're out of pepperoni. Giving a sarcastic response, Dorothy asks if she's informed Dan Rather. Dan Rather was and is a prolific journalist, covering some of the biggest stories of the last 60 years while anchoring the CBS Evening News. I do love that Sophia can't have cottage cheese or chicken because of the repeating, but she is hungry and wants a meal of pepperoni, something that would definitely, even the vegan ones, give me heartburn. After turning down the chicken, we're treated to a terrible shot where the camera is in a lower corner of the stove, making Dorothy look giant, and Blanche looks tiny, and while Dorothy's speaking, Blanche's head kind of 
blocks her. The whole thing is just a mess. Repeating herself about the repeating of the chicken before she repeats it again, Sophia is making it clear she is only interested in getting her hands on some pepperoni. When Dorothy offers the now unwanted chicken to Blanche, she takes the opportunity to point out that she is only having raw veggies. That's because she's wanting to lose the three pounds she has recently gained. While most people wouldn't notice three pounds, Sophia had, and thought Blanche had gained them on each side. Looking back to my childhood, which was around the time of the show, the women in my life really were like that. Oh, I'm up a size. I gained six pounds over the holidays. Which is why, one, I have a very unhealthy relationship with food and my body. And B, it's why I threw out my scale a long time ago. And when I feel the weight I've gained, I'm thankful for having access to food and to do what I can to move more and feel healthy. Three pounds? That's like taking a good poo. That's nothing to go all veggie eating about. Blanche explains that she used to have a waistline as small as Scarlett O'Hara's, who's measured a mere 18 inches. Sure, explains Dorothy, the fictional character from the fictional book had a fictitiously small waist. But even Vivian Lee, the actress that played Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, still had a waist that measured at a measly 24 inches. Having a waist that measures only 15 inches when corseted, Kathy Young has won the Guinness World Record for the smallest waist. Please Google her right now and see how ridiculous Blanche's goal and comparison of the 18 inches really is. Where are this woman's organs? Rose has arrived in a blue-violet dress with thick, widely separated vertical stripes, and she is distraught. She takes a seat at the table, and the ladies gather round. In some clever stage direction, Dorothy asks Sophia to get Rose some water, which allows for the seat to open up for Blanche so they can have a proper table talk. Reminding us that we're back to being in the early days, Sophia is unnecessarily vicious. After being asked for water, Sophia gets up but doesn't go get it. Instead, she goes on and on about how useless water is in a time like this before storming out after giving Rose a really nasty look. I think she's just hangry due to the lack of pepperoni. The tight shots on everyone's faces are a bit intense, but I tell you what, it's all worth it for how Blanche looks throughout this episode. The lack of makeup makes her look naturally tan and relaxed, and the different lighting makes her eyes pop in a way that would make Frank Sinatra jealous. This really is one of her best-looking episodes, in my opinion. Rose has bad news to share, which makes Blanche worried because she'll want to emotionally eat, but she's going to share anyway. The grief counseling center Rose works at has been closed. Don't worry, the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, where shuttles and rockets launch from, is still in working order, to answer Dorothy's remark. Fun fact, if Rose did go to the moon, she would have been the first Lutheran. That's because Buzz Aldrin was Presbyterian and Neil Armstrong was agnostic. In fact, while Buzz was on the moon as only the second human to do so, he remains the only person to hold a religious ceremony on the moon. While there, he asked for a moment of giving thanks before prayer and taking communion. If this episode had been filmed chronologically, I do think the girls would have been more delicate with Rose. Instead, they are immediately reminding her of why she should be stressed. She's out of a job. How will she pay rent? How will she buy food? Although Dorothy does make a good point. For both of them, they're just a paycheck or one bad bill away from being in real financial trouble. In fact, a recent survey from Charles Schwab showed that 59% of Americans are in that exact position, one paycheck away from homelessness. 
Blanche can't relate as she was smart enough to marry Rich. This moment gives us an opening credit shot, which we'll get a lot of in this episode, of the girl sitting around the table as Dorothy slaps Blanche's hand in response to her story of wisdom, accompanied with a tramp. So it's not a tramp stamp, rather a tramp slap. Making the most important point of all is Rose. She has many traits any employer would be looking for, so getting another job will be totally doable. But the people that use the grief center and call for help, where are they going to go? In a head-to-toe, light, coral, comfy suit, we see my grandmere, I mean Dorothy, making her way to the lanai with a newspaper and, you guessed it, orange juice. As she sits down, there's a strange man in the chair next to her, whom she gives a double take before saying an awkward, Hello. She begins to introduce herself, and his responses make you almost forget that they're sitting in her backyard and not at a Las Vegas swimming pool. That is, until Dorothy gives up and goes with, I live here. Milton, the man who is still not catching on to Dorothy's roundabout way of saying, who the hell are you and why are you on my lanai, then talks about where he lives and how long of a walk home it is. When he tells Dorothy he usually takes the bus, she asks if he's currently waiting for one. His response to that isn't what she expects either. He's not waiting for a bus. He's getting in touch with his emotions while reading Dorothy's Newsweek magazine. When Rose comes out in her light blue dress and excitedly realizes Dorothy and Milton have met, Dorothy assumes the two are dating, and she quickly tells Rose to dump him. In fact, she refers to him as Driftwood, which might be my new favorite slam. It turns out Milton isn't a date or a vagrant. He was a patient at the grief center, and he came to Rose to get the number of a counselor. She also provided him with her number, a landline with no caller ID and gave him permission to call at any time. I've had my personal number get into the hands of clients before, and boy howdy, that is not something you want to do. When Rose closes the door behind Milton, leaving him with words of encouragement, she turns back to Dorothy, almost exactly mimicking her shot from the opening credits, but I'm 99% sure it's different, and she says, he's such a pain in the butt. While talking to Dorothy about starting to look for work, it's clear Rose has been preoccupied with making sure her patients from the grief center were cared for before she worried about herself. That's all well and good, Rose, but it's like the rules of an airplane. You have to put your mask on first so you can help other people. Rose isn't stressed, though. She's ready for hard work, just like how it was back on the farm. Sophia comes into the living room in a gray, purple, and white floral dress, and her purse, of course, and she has phone messages from the day. I don't blame Sophia for being annoyed by it. She had at least six messages for the girls. How could anyone enjoy Young and the Restless with the phone ringing nonstop? Rose is going through her messages, which are all from clients, one of which was deported, so I guess the plus there is that she doesn't have to try to find him a counselor, hence her tearing up his message. More importantly, Dorothy got a message that a Barry Glick was in town. As Dorothy reads the message, she starts to rise off the couch, staring distantly, her eyes widening with excitement. Then, running behind the couch with her voice raising, she sits on the arm of the chair Sophia is in, pointing to the message, reminding her of the huge crush she had on him back in high school. As elated as Dorothy is that she'll be meeting up with Barry next week, Rose is equally excited that one of her clients found her cat. Leave it to Sophia to ruin the moment by getting more specific. Yeah, she found her cat, but it was under the wheel of a jeep, so... In response to this bad news, Dorothy gives us a smaller version of her I can't stand you, Ma, cat claws.
What an exciting moment we're getting to see down the hallway. Leaving her bedroom that looks to be kind of behind the kitchen, Dorothy marches across the hall and starts banging on a door, calling out for Rose. Either this is a TV set or B. Arthur is one strong broad. As she knocks, the hallway table and lamp shake like they're in San Fran in 1906. That's a joke for my older listeners. Waking Rose with the lights, Dorothy informs her she has a phone call. Groggy and confused, Rose asks, Is it time to milk the cows, Daddy? Dorothy is kind enough to reply sweetly, letting her know again she has a phone call. But when Rose takes out her earplugs and asks again, well, the third time is a charm. If charm means the time Dorothy gets fed up with repeating herself and does really aggressive signing that even leads to her going cross-eyed. I heard something a while back that was very upsetting, and I'd like to share it with you now. You can tell what generation someone is from, or at least what their age is, kind of, on how they do the airphone sign. So if you can be hands-free right now, pretend you're taking a pretend phone call. Did you do the hand banana and put your pinky at your mouth and your thumb at your ear? Or did you kind of do a square like your hand was holding a cell phone? If you did the former, you're old. If you did the latter, you're a millennial or younger. If you did what Dorothy did, which was to hold one hand like you were holding the tall, candlestick-looking receiver of an old phone and put the other to your ear like a little squid as though you were holding the earpiece, well, I'm amazed you're alive, let alone able to find and listen to podcasts. Even though Rose has a phone at her bedside, she didn't hear it. Therefore, the call disrupted the whole house. For some reason, she's surprised Milton has called in the middle of the night, even though she did say he could call day or night. But she didn't think he would take that expression literally. It's not like the whole world laughs with you when you're laughing. From bookbrowse.com, a Roman poet named Horace back in B.C. times, no, not before COVID, but like way back B.C., wrote, Ut rintibus ardent in fleetbus which means human faces laugh seeing those who laugh and correspondingly cry seeing those who cry. Sorry I'm so good at my Roman. While that poem was written a very long time ago, that phrase was really coined in the 1883 poem Solitude by American poet Ella Wheeler Wilcox. It read, Laugh and the world laughs with you. Weep and you weep alone. For the sad old earth must borrow its mirth but has trouble enough on its own. Sing and the hills will answer. Sigh, it is lost on the air. The echoes bound to a joyful sound, but shrink from voicing care. Leaving Rose's room and slamming the door behind her, Dorothy is surprised to see and scared by Blanche, who is already in the hallway standing in front of her door. Well, if her room is there and Rose's is there, where the hell is that bathroom they remodeled? Now, may I present to you the greatest moment from the opening credits, Blanche's sachet down the hall. Standing in her long, silky robe with her sleep mask on her forehead, Blanche tells Dorothy how much she hates phone calls in the middle of the night, and they, oh boy, make her as nervous as a virgin at a prison rodeo. There's something about how not malicious and totally narcissistic she is that it somehow allows for her to get away with this joke. You're going to be shocked to hear that Texas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana have all offered prison rodeos in very recent times. The one in Louisiana brings in millions of dollars of revenue. Millions 
for the prison, of course. The inmates, some of which get seriously hurt or even killed, can compete in games involving bulls and zero training to maybe walk away with a whopping $500. Yikes. Coming through an unusually dark hallway and living room, the girls talk about how the phone call was nerve-wracking and how it made them miss having a man around. I mean, you ladies seem to be doing a fine job with it, so maybe don't sell yourself short? As Blanche situates herself on the sofa as to show off her fluffy kitten heels, a voice comes from beyond, agreeing that a real good phone-answering man does it in a way where you don't even hear it. While that was clearly Sophia's voice, it wasn't clear where it was coming from. Dorothy gets up and finds Sophia sitting in the dark corner of the unused area of the living room. She's where the desk Blanche uses for the phone book and the Bed of Roses episode ends up, but for now it's just a chair in the dark. Dorothy has had enough of the shenanigans. Tomorrow is her big reunion with Barry and she wants to be well rested since it's the first time they'll be seeing each other in 35 years. I'm thinking she's just rounding down. She would have been with Stan by then, right? As if feeling tired wouldn't be bad enough when Dorothy isn't well-rested, she ends up looking like Buddy Epson. Buddy Epson worked in show business for 70 years. While he's known for many roles like in Breakfast at Tiffany's or Barnaby Jones, he is best known as the dad from the original Beverly Hillbillies. I think he was actually kind of a cute guy, but I can see where Dorothy maybe didn't want to look like a man in his 80s with bags under his eyes. Blanche agrees that Dorothy's concerns are valid. Even more concerning, though, are her concerns, which is that when she's up in the middle of the night, she eats, and she's still trying to lose those three pounds. Well, now it's down to two. They all finally pull their heads out of their bums about being stressed about themselves to realize they should be stressed about Rose having a job. Wait, what? I thought they were all going to say, here we are worried about a couple of pounds and a date and our friend is having to help people going through mental health crises. Nope, instead Dorothy is really giving us some oh boys and even a who the heck are you to talk like that when describing Rose's clients as pathetic wimps. Okay ladies, I know you're only looking out for your friend, but she is a sensitive soul. She just lost her job, which is stressful enough, but it was one where you worked with people. As a teacher, Dorothy should show some understanding about how it isn't about the money you make or taking care of yourself even. When you have that kind of job, you can't help but to pour everything into it and become concerned for the people there. That was literally your job. So instead of asking her how they can help, they have decided that right now in the middle of the night when they are all tired and groggy, they should gang up on and attack Rose for having no training, no husband, and no job. Hey. Hey, Blanche. Dorothy. You! As the first American woman to win the Olympic gold for all-around gymnastics, Mary Lou Retton became a household name after the 1984 Olympic Games. In addition to her gold, she also won two silver and two bronze. She was also the first female athlete to get the cover of a Wheaties box. So I guess Blanche is right. Rose isn't Mary Lou Retton. During all of this, Sophia stayed in the chair in the corner, and she just turned off the light, all fatal attraction style. So creepy, so unnecessary. Why couldn't she have joined the conversation or just gone to bed? Rose doesn't even know she's sitting there listening to her for crying out loud. Alicia, this is Coco. Yes, Coco, hello. That scene, or, or Sophia's actions in that scene could lead one to believe 
that she has passed away and is a spirit in that scene. That's She's very true. She's trying to pass a message on. <laughs> From beyond. And they're just all wrapped up in their own stuff, so they don't recognize it. I like that. She's like, that she's a or she's, yeah. Well, this is, I mean, time-wise, time this is still when she's had a stroke and has no internal monologue and just says whatever she wants. So maybe that was part of why they had her in the corner. Like, it's, yeah. it's kooky behavior, just like, oh, that silly old lady. She'll just do things like sit in a chair in the dark. After being ganged up on, Rose very fairly lashes out. Actually, I have been trying to find a job, she tells them. She's gone to dozens of interviews. While she doesn't consider herself to be old and useless, according to the job market, she is. She's scared, alone, and doesn't have friends that are being supportive. Making our way to Rose's room, we find her sulking on her bed sideways, burying her face in a decorative pillow. Why is it when we're sad or basically not sleeping, it always feels better to lay on your bed in kind of a weird position? With their tails between their legs, Blanche and Dorothy arrive to offer support and condolences. Landing on her bed, we again wonder, is this a set or are the ladies related to Godzilla as we watch the bed frame sway like a boat lost at sea? Opening up as to why she didn't share her struggle with the girls, Rose explains it's because talking to them won't give her more skills or make her younger, so what good will it do? Our realistic hero, Dorothy, is finally back, and she points out that this isn't the first, nor will it be the last time, Rose has had to deal with a change in her life. When her husband Charlie died, she had to learn how to live life without him and move forward, and she has to do the same now. We get some Rose backstory plot whoopsie here. In the pilot, Rose says it's been 15 years since Charlie died. Now she says five, which makes a lot more sense. What doesn't make sense is that Rose would feel no one would want her around just because she's a little bit older. Blanche assures her, of course we want you around. We just can't pay your way, girl. Then Dorothy gets serious, putting her tough substitute teacher voice to work. You're five years older, so am I. So is Blanche. While Blanche looks on in silent support, she can't help but be annoyed at having it pointed out that she has aged with time. Dorothy continues, you have more wrinkles, so do I, so does Blanche. This earns a stare from Blanche that nearly sets Dorothy's hair on fire. Then, all the comedic delivery pays off. So you've gained some weight. So is Blanche. Dorothy, the queen of complimenting one friend while roasting another. This comment causes Blanche to nearly shake herself into an explosion of anger, but she keeps her cool so the moment can be about Rose. For Rose, it hasn't been about getting interviews. That's the easy part. It's once she's there and they realize she's older that she's been losing out. She then awkwardly talks about the job she wants and that she has an interview for the next day. The job is one of a hospital administrator. When venting about her frustrations as to why she already knows she won't get the job, it's because she isn't qualified and she's too old. I don't mean to rain on your parade, Rose, but age has nothing to do with it. To be a hospital administrator, you know, the person who literally runs the hospital, you need extensive education and experience in your background. First, a high school degree. Already we're a little iffy, but we won't get into that plot whoopsie on this episode. After high school, you get a bachelor's in healthcare admin or business. Then you get your master's in healthcare administration. 
I'm not sure how different the qualifications were back in the 80s, but I can't really imagine they were like, you know what? You barely graduated high school, if at all. You were a home ec major at a community college. You spent six months at a business school. No word on if you got a degree from either. You have no managerial experience and no medical experience. You're hired. I do wish the writers had chosen something more realistically attainable, like maybe managing a daycare or working at a therapist's office. Dorothy is still in teacher mode when she asks to see Rose's resume so she can make sure it's as good as can be. Conveniently ready for corrections on a clipboard with a pencil is said resume, which I'm sure Rose typed up on a typewriter. So now with all of Dorothy's corrections, crossing outs, and rewordings, she'll have to retype it. And it's currently the middle of the night, and her interview is at 8.30 a.m. Hey, friends, you're actually making this more stressful, okay? Putting that pencil to work, Dorothy starts to make the necessary corrections. That is, after her shock of learning that one of Rose's hobbies is cheesemaking wears off. I still can't decide if I enjoy it or find it weird that it's expected for you to put hobbies on a resume. Sure, it allows the potential boss to see if you'd be a good fit for the place, but if I'm here for a few hours a day, it's not my life or passion, and I spend my weekend winning karaoke contests, how does that make me better for this job? If anything, I would think it could potentially cost you a job because you sound too weird or maybe your hobby is to follow around a band that someone in the HR department hates. Who knows? After the resume is updated, the ladies decide none of them are ready for bed and they all want to go get a snack in the kitchen. Rose offers to make them all warm milk. While the milk can make your body feel full and the warmth is relaxing, there's no proven benefit of drinking warm milk and helping you sleep. You can achieve the same effect by drinking a warm cup of tea or having a snack and warm beverage. Blanche isn't worried about the milk. She would rather have a big O to help her get to sleep. Dorothy can't relate. She always fell asleep during. Once again, I'm so happy the direction of the show changed because we're getting weird angles as the ladies walk in the kitchen door and weird angles once we join them in the kitchen. I feel about the direction the way Rose does about plain milk. Yuck. Which seems odd since most people do just drink milk, but of course she needs cookies. Speaking of big O's, Rose is grabbing her favorite midnight caffeinated treat, Oreos. Farewell, Blanche's diet. The chocolate cheesecake is coming out. Not only do I think this is the first official mention of cheesecake, it was definitely the first one recorded. This leads us to the first and perhaps greatest table talk of the series. As Blanche and Rose raid the kitchen for snacks in a fashion only seen nightly in my house with Coco when we have the munchies, Dorothy waits at the table ready to deliver quips at any second. So when Rose delights with surprise and asks, guess what I found? Dorothy responds with, Judge Crater? Judge Joseph Force Crater was a New York State Supreme Court justice who, in August of 1930, disappeared under suspicious circumstances. He was involved in corruption, blackmail, and multiple affairs, two of which would also disappear, and a third was murdered. This sounds like another mini-case for Murder in the Rain's Patreon. When the judge was finally declared missing, it was weeks after he had last been seen. Eventually, he was declared legally dead. Missing, murdered, or runaway, it would have been a shock if, after 56 years, Judge Crater was in the back of the ladies' freezer. 
To complement the Oreos, Rose brings out the cookies and cream ice cream. But of course, you can't lead with dessert. You need something savory and substantial. Something like lemon chicken, smoked ham, smoked oysters, and to bring it all full circle, the missing pepperoni. Again, Rose wants Dorothy to guess what she has found deep in the fridge. Again, Dorothy mentions a notoriously missing person, Jimmy Hoffa. Jimmy Hoffa was a mob boss and union leader. In July of 1975, he went missing. In 1982, he was declared officially dead. You may remember his name from the famously cringy live television event hosted by scumbag extraordinaire Geraldo Rivera. Thinking he had possibly discovered Hoffa's body in a long-hidden vault, he did a live event for television. They opened the vault, and despite all of his vigor and excitement, nothing was there. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the old Lexington Hotel, where 60 years ago, during the height of the Roaring Twenties and Prohibition, this once lavish building belonged or was the headquarters for the notorious gangster Al Capone. Directly beneath me, in this hotel's rubble-strewn basement, a massive concrete chamber has been discovered, and there is evidence to suggest that that vault once belonged to Al Capone, the richest and most powerful gangster of his time. Now, what, if anything, that vault contains, we don't know. This is an adventure you and I are going to be taking together, because one way or the other, the mystery is going to be solved tonight. We're going to break open that vault, and we're going to step inside. We're also going to step back into history. While promising to not tell Sophia the pepperoni was in there all along, Blanche decorates the tabletop with olives, asparagus, and all sorts of long-term items that she proclaims are good for them to be eating because they would have just spoiled. Yeah, Blanche, in like nine years. Never fear, the orange juice and bread are here. The ladies then start talking about how their bodies react to food. For Dorothy, it takes one day for the fat to show up. For Blanche, the second she eats something filling or fatty, she balloons right up. On a totally different note, I think the scene is the prettiest Blanche has ever looked in the series. Not so far, but like, will ever look. There's something ethereal to the lighting. Her hair is kind of different and weird, but in the best way. All while her eyes pierce through the screen, she gives us an ASMR snack sound, and she speaks in the vocal tone of my Grammy. All of it is just perfection. While we've been focused on Rose's work woes, let's not forget tomorrow is Dorothy's big date with the one and only Barry Glick. She's so excited because back in high school, Barry was who she wanted to lose her virginity to. But she didn't. Here comes the big O boys. No, not because of the scandalous sex talk that's about to happen, but because Dorothy again shares more about her and Stan and how they got together. She didn't hook up with Barry because Stan had entered the picture. She agreed to go with him to the drive-in because he claimed to be leaving for the Korean War. She jokes that her going on the date was her way of supporting the soldiers. But that is some plot whoopsie there because in a later episode, she'll talk about them getting together under different circumstances, much more unpleasant and sexual assaulty ones. Being the horrible lover Stan is, Dorothy didn't even realize she had had sex because it was over so quickly. Then, nine months later, she had her first baby. Rose waited until her wedding night to have sex. Not only was it her first experience with sex, it was her first time seeing a human penis. Blanche and Dorothy can't believe it. Blanche can't believe it because it's so unrelatable. Dorothy can't believe that she hadn't at least accidentally seen a family member like her father. Well, this question sends Rose into a tizzy of St. Olafian proportions. 
how the, what the, my, oh, my father. So when I was five, my family was hosting one of our only ever fully extended family Christmases, which I'm not sure what my parents were thinking as we were in a one bathroom house at the time, but okay. So we have all the aunts and uncles and cousins over. My dad's dad was out of the picture from when he was young, but my grandpa's twin brother was always around as the grandpa, and he was there too. And of course, he was the one I walked in on peeing. I don't think I was shocked at the penis so much as I was amazed that he was standing up and I couldn't really understand what he was doing. Coco, have you ever accidentally seen a family member's member? Yes. Firstly... Did you say how old you were when this happened? I think I was about five. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that's why it was more like, how are you standing up? Yeah, I I, I have a, a memory of being a little kid, maybe the same age, five or so, and uh, taking a shower. Maybe we were camping or something and having to take a shower in the same, like, you know, big shower thing as my dad and seeing his, uh, his genitals then. Um, so that wasn't weird. Once when I was 13 or so... Uh, I walked in our, our bathroom at my mom's house had two bathroom doors oh, so uh-huh. on either, you know, and so I walked into one and then, then there's a big long mirror there and in the mirror as I walk in, I can see into the mirror and my sister is sitting there doing her hair with a, you know, loud blow dryer and had a sweater on and then nothing else. Oh no, so she was, was double like, ducking while doing yes, her hair. And she was like, you know, yeah. And she like, you know, ran towards, <laughs> slammed the door shut. But I was like, oh, I do have that image in my head. Oh, lucky you. No thanks. <laughs> so I can understand Rose's reaction to that. Yeah. It's not something anyone wants. No. The ladies bring Rose down from the ledge, and she goes on to explain that the only things she had seen were from the animals on the farm. And Blanche is right. With humans having an average penis size of 5.16 inches when erect, being compared to a horse's 24 to 32 inch average is a tough act to follow. When recalling that first night, Rose continues to share how the whole commencing act took some time because the whole idea seemed so ridiculous. She just couldn't believe that that was what you were expected to do. I do think about that all the time. Like, It is all such a silly, weird thing. Why does anyone care who does what to who? Dorothy nearly chokes on her pepperoni when hearing Rose explain how weird it all was. Trying to seek validation in her feelings, Rose looks to Blanche. Didn't you think it was laughable? I love Blanche in this scene so much. The way she kind of licks the inside of her lower lip while simultaneously being surprised and disgusted by Rose's point of view is pure magic. She not only didn't wait until her wedding night, she couldn't wait until her wedding night. She jokes that because she was in the South, the heat probably had something to do with her maturing faster. Well, buckle up for a fun fact. Research has shown she might be right. There are studies that have found that in climates with hotter weather, children may spend more time indoors being sedentary. That lack of movement equals a lack of melatonin. That hormone being lowered can cause puberty to begin prematurely. So I guess it's kind of a sad fun fact. Also being shown to cause early puberty, air pollutants, plastic pollution, and the milk on the table. Yeah, it's full of hormones and they're causing it too. Wow. Such fun facts. One good thing about that is that our military will be made of large people. <laughs> That's true. Big bruisers <laughs> with big pecs and big b- 
Big thighs. Big old fists. This was always my Grammy Corrine's favorite scene. I'm not sure if it was just because it was so damn funny or because Blanche is channeling old Corrine, but either way, it's top-tier television. As Blanche reminisces about the first time she was intimate with a boy, she recalls every detail, from the tree she was under to the perfume she was wearing. I did always love the description. It sounded like something out of a Hallmark movie, all setting the scene for her unforgettable, life-changing moment with her first lover, Billy. No, Bobby! Or was it Ben? The way she squawkingly laughs while disregarding whoever the bee he was, all that mattered was that Blanche enjoyed herself. Many, many times. Blanche isn't alone in that ability. In, 2000, in a 2016 study, it was found that 8% of women enjoy themselves many, many times. The ability to many, many times for women can depend on their clitoral sensitivity and refractory period. Don't give up if you're going for many, many. 70% of women reported experiencing it at least once. So keep on trying with Brandon or Brian or Becky. Sadly, Rose and Dorothy fall in the same category as about 50 to 70% of women in heterosexual relationships, that they are not satisfied. Another shocking number, approximately 12% of women have never had their eyes roll in the back of their heads. Ladies, gentlemen, non-binary friends, please love yourself. Spend some time with yourself. Get to know your golden girl. Bring electrical items you hide under your blanket into the picture. Grab a mirror. If you don't have to be in that category, don't be. If you don't know how to love yourself, how will you communicate with a lover how to love you? Can I get an amen? Unsurprisingly, Dorothy was never part of the sex in her sexual interactions with Stan. Looking at the table, the girls are less impressed than they should be at all they've had to snack. They also realize it's basically morning and they should move away from dinner and dessert to coffee and Danish for breakfast. Out come the eggs and bacon as the night turns into morning. It's a few days later and we're surprised to find Blanche and Milton out on the lanai. Lucky for Milton, Rose wasn't home when he came to her house again. But Blanche was. Does she know he's the annoying guy that called in the middle of the night? Milton goes on about how he doesn't want Blanche to be so concerned about what she's eating. He likes a thicker lady. Yeah, because Rue's size tiny, yellow with white flower print dress and matching yellow fan is really showing those thick curves. What Milton actually says, and eventually does, is pinch an inch. This is an old-timey theory that was used to measure body fat. Basically, the rule was that you shouldn't be able to pinch more than an inch of fat anywhere on your body. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's a cocoa, oh boy. Oops. Got those everywhere. This has since been debunked, of course, but that didn't keep my PE teacher from lifting my dress to measure my eight-year-old tummy for fat with a little plastic pincher as part of the presidential health and fitness test of the early 90s. As Milton leaves, Sophia arrives donned in blue pants, a checkered shirt with pastel lines, and a pink cardigan, confused that Blanche is with Milton, not Rose. Dorothy then comes out in her oversized blue shirt she tucks into the top of her linen pants. It's very now fashion, mom jeans with the shirt tucked in only in the middle. She's hoping to hear that Barry had called the house again while she was out. They had met for their lunch, and it went well. So well, they were going out again. 
in this scene, Coco, you pointed out there are a couple moments that should have had laughter and they don't. And it's just clunky. Kind of like when Milton goes to leave and he backs away from Sophie. He's like, ma'am or good afternoon, ma'am, something like that. And it's like, well, what is that about? We <laughs> Like we've not seen them interact. So why is he reacting that way? And a couple jokes that just fall, they just let fall into nothing. I, I imagine, too, that um, whatever studio audience they had there, too, it'd be like, you know, you wouldn't know them. Oh, yeah. You have no so idea what like, you're watching. Should I do what? Where do I laugh? And what? Because sometimes and, and maybe with the direction, too, is that sometimes the show can sound really serious. Yeah. And I think people sometimes don't know when to laugh. Mm-hmm. And it's, and that does happen actually when even on the even in the great episodes, you'll hear that laughter that doesn't sound sure of itself. Yeah, Something's I kind of love that yeah, though. I do too. I love the realistic nature of that because there are moments that something maybe bad or heavy has happened and you kind of want to laugh, but then it's also like, oh, I shouldn't. Yeah. And I like that it makes it feel awkward because it is awkward. Even after 35 years, Barry was just like Dorothy remembered him, only now he was living as an out gay man. Good for you, Barry. I have had heavy crushes on at least two gay men that I know of. Sorry to brag. What I'm saying is, it's okay, Dorothy. Your friendship will probably be way better than any relationship would have been. Sophia is not surprised to hear the news. That's because back in the day, Barry worshipped Buster Crab. Buster Crab was a very hunky Olympic medalist swimmer who gained fame winning his bronze and gold medals, which led to a 40-year career in television and movies. He got started in the 1940s, so there aren't a lot of notable roles, but I'm sure he somehow made an appearance on La La. Dorothy's not concerned about not being able to be with Barry, and before they can finish their conversation, an adorable bubbly rose arrives in a flowy navy dress with pink flowers and a businesswoman's special pink blazer. She hasn't taken an antidepressant in pill form, but she stopped for one at a local restaurant, ordering an old-fashioned root beer float to cheer herself up, which it did, but only for a moment. She then literally saw a sign, a help-wanted sign. And now she is a waitress at the local coffee shop, a job we'll never hear about again. After all of their anti-support, you would think the girls would be more excited to hear that Rose got a job. Instead, they start with listing all the negatives. Dorothy does clarify, it's not like she'd be working at a grubby truck stop. It's a nice place. So nice, the worst thing that could happen is she'll get scratched by a pinky ring. Coco, you had a theory on this that, like, the pinky ring is because fancy people would be wearing it and they might bump her while ordering or something? No, not fancy people. That They would be like, to me, in the 80s, someone says pinky ring and I think a criminal, perhaps a pimp. Oh, okay. Someone who's or like, like mobster a, type. Yeah, a con man or something. He's got a little okay. pinky ring on. He's like, hey, you know, you want some of these watches? Hey, you know? Got hey. it. You heard of a compact So that's as dangerous player. as it gets as like the the nice bad guys. You didn't let me do my salesman on the street bit? Oh my gosh, finish. I didn't have a bit. Oh. I was just starting to get into like what you want in my jacket. No matter how negative the girls are about it, Rose fights back. Yeah, it'll be hard work, but I'd rather fall asleep from working hard and being tired than from being stressed out and crying. The girls pull themselves together to celebrate that Rose is happy. After we get another final opening credit shot, Blanche double checks with Rose that she can go out on a date with Milton. So, yeah, she does know he's from the center. 
It's not a red flag that he's seeking help, but I do hope that she checks in with him to make sure he's in a good place to be dating. Rose assures Blanche she can date him. They are strictly professional. Then, breaking patient confidentiality and roasting Blanche while she's in the midst of a two-pound crisis, Rose shares that she would never date Milton. He has a thing about dating fat women. Rose and Dorothy don't really catch how harsh that was, but petite Blanche, standing so we really can see how close she is to that 18-inch waist, is getting left in a huff. When going through something as stressful as losing your job, it's important you have a support system you can reach out to. It's equally important that support system is just that, supportive, not judgmental, forceful, or negative, like how Dorothy and Blanche got when they were stressed on Rose's behalf. Remember, if you're in the supportive role, your friend is stressed out enough. It's not your job to bring more stress to the situation. Instead, be the cheerleader and Oreo provider, showing your friend you believe in them and know that they will land on their feet. As for the many of us that lost our jobs in the last year, don't let anything get you down about it. Your age, your skill set. If you're in a position that allows you to follow your true passion, do it. Just don't go giving your number out to every Milton you come across. Rose's confidence in this episode reminds me of one of my favorite shirts from one of my favorite makers called Feminist Trash. The shirt reads, Seize the day with the unearned confidence of a mediocre white man. So apply for those jobs you don't feel qualified for. You never know where it could lead. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we explore the difference between caregiving and enabling when Rose's sister comes for a visit in Blind Ambitions. The song she is singing is called Kentucky Babe, and it was written in night... Mm -mm. Mm -mm, No, it wasn't. The song she is singing is called Kentucky Babe, and it was written in 1896 by Richard Henry. Oh, three names. (laughs) It went to the next line, so it was Richard Henry Buck. Richard Henry three names? (laughs) Yes. Nice to meet you. How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? Okay, okay, okay. Without so much as a... After turning down the chicken, we're treated to a terrible shot where the camera is in the lower corner. After turning down the kitchen, not chicken, I mean chicken, not kitchen. Mm -hmm. After turning down the chicken, we're treated to a terrible shot where the camera is in the lower corner by the stove making making Dorothy. (laughs) Welcome back to making Dorothy. Today's material is balsa wood. <laughs> Let's start. Megan Dorothy. Megan, Megan Dorothy. Megan Dorothy. Dorothy. Megan, Megan Dorothy. Megan, Megan Dorothy. Megan Dorothy. That was really good. I would watch that show. <laughs> is that the language? I don't know. Way back in the day. Oh, I don't know. Wait, I don't know. How dare you? How dare you? I don't know. I I only have a high school education. And that high school education ended over 20 years ago. I have to go now. Enroll in some night classes. Goodbye. I like that. An ice cold milk burp. Ew. Oh, I'm sorry. An ice cold milk burp?
<laughs> when you feel how cold it is in your tummy. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it kind of like so where like, the air moves through and it's and like, like, ooh, that's oh, nice and chilly that in there. That is chilled milk. <laughs> it happens more with chocolate milk. I think probably because you drink more of it at once. Interesting oh, yeah, theorem, Josh. Ooh. I'll work on that later <laughs> in my Nestle laboratory. Tomorrow, I'm going to drink a, a gallon of chocolate milk, and then the next day, I'll drink a gallon of regular milk, and I'll see which one feels colder. I always underestimate uh, the wetness of your burps. Just how gross the sound is going to be that comes out of me, <laughs> my, me mouth or me butt. <laughs> oh, that's cool. And then when it's a dry one, it's you're, you're, you need to drink some water. So yeah. people should just fart openly and then be like, I'm thirsty. You need some water. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I just farted to see whether or not I needed to drink water. You know, how everyone does it. <laughs> All right. Where did you where did you learn it? Where did you uh who well let me let me rephrase all of this. Every single part. You know the going through puberty videos that everyone had to watch. I don't know if you had those at your school. I did school. not because of private school, right. because of Catholic school. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, what now you I'm have or now don't I'm have. neither private nor Catholic. I <laughs> oh no, I was gonna say about puberty. I wonder I grew up in a hot environment. I was I I just sat down constantly. When did you go through puberty? Four. Or like you know, you can't remember getting like trained off of potty training or like when you started doing that all by yourself. Yeah. It just happened one day. Your parents stopped carrying you inside. Oh my god. You learned how to wipe your own butt. Oh my god. And then you're forty one and you have a podcast. Everything's great. I'm sorry I yelled at you. Oh. I didn't You know. did? You said I I did. remember. <gasps> ah! I'm going to fart into my crock later. <laughs> Let me turn up my mic for that. I'm going to fart into my crock later. Nailed it. Send it to the bloops. At the time, well, I wait, was Wait, 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 wait. Time out. Hold on. Let me finish this, and then I would love to hear that experience. I was in super jail. For murder, is what I was going to say. But now I'm not going to tell that story because you interrupted me. No. no ne you'll never hear about Super Jail. Shut up. You're never going to hear about Super Jail. No. It hasn't affected my personal health whatsoever. I am not going back to Super Jail. I am not going back. I really I know. I, I really think that people can't hear me, so I don't take offense. Well, unless I do. <laughs> Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.